I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, kitchen chemistry, pot, and evolution. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Ken Croswell, who will discuss the 10 planets. We'll also find out what a natural killer cell is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Welcome back to Perfect Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And once again, I guess this makes me Charles Lee. What a coincidence. Thinking one day it might change. I, I want to be Charles Lee. Maybe one day, Frank. So uh, what's cooking in your kitchen? Nothing, in fact, since I don't cook. I expect things to spontaneously emerge out of the wreckage that is my kitchen. If it's a wreckage, does your fridge smell a little bit? <laughs> yes, from the uh, one moldy potato I have in there. I have a picking duck from 1992, but <laughs> that's another story. That could actually turn into a potato, I think, after <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> so you know that conventional wisdom that if you put baking soda in your fridge, it's supposed to absorb uh, bad odors and keep it smelling a little better, right? Right. Well, apparently it doesn't work. My mom used that for years. And even the new freeze and freezer box that Arm & Hammer makes, the ones that have the side where it makes the air accessible on the side, mm-hmm. they also don't work. What was the rationale behind the baking soda? Uh, yeah, in principle, it's a good idea, but problems to access all the surface area uh-huh. in the powder is I actually see. very difficult. Mm. And overall, the effect is very, very minimal. So even if you're able to spread it across the lining of your fridge, it wouldn't yeah. even be useful. Professor Robert Wilk, professor from Pittsburgh, who's also a Washington Post food columnist, has debunked some of these misconceptions in the kitchen in his new book, What Einstein Told His Cook, Number 2. His second cook or the numbered second, the second, second piece of uh, sec- book of his series, series I guess. Okay. Uh, another misconception is, according to theory, it's that if you add wine to your dishes, it's supposed to capture the flavors that are soluble in ethanol, but mm-hmm. apparently that doesn't quite work. I would imagine as you're cooking, the uh, ethanol is vaporizing, right? That's actually a second part to it. So first of all, it doesn't absorb that much. Second of all, a significant amount of ethanol remains because yeah. when water and ethanol are together, they form an azeotrope, a sort of substance which is sort of interaction of the two. Mm-hmm. The ethanol is nice because it can help form different esters while you're cooking, but it doesn't do what a lot of chefs think it can do. Hmm. At the very least, it's an excuse to have the wine bottle near you while you're drinking. Yeah. So... So if you're more interested in better chemistry around the kitchen, you can check out both of his books, What Einstein Told His Cook, 1 and 2. Well, I wonder if Einstein ever experimented with the wacky weed while he was cooking. Probably. I mean, isn't that like the source of creativity for like artists and other thinkers? How else do you explain that head of hair? He's a hairy man, right? Researchers recently have been studying the effects of both marijuana and smoking on lung cancer. It cures lung cancer, right? <laughs> no, but at least according to recent research led by pulmonologist Donald Tashkin of the University of California, Los Angeles, he says that smoking weed actually has very little risk for lung cancer. Well, some people call it drug. We call it life. I just call it an escape. <laughs> So it's very fascinating. It was actually an epidemiological study. He was studying cancer patients, basically gave them a survey to see what their uh, habits were regarding smoking and both marijuana use. Right. And he found that even among heavy tokers who smoked over 22,000 joints in their lifetime, there was little correlation between that and their risk of cancer. So it's very fascinating because marijuana certainly does have some carcinogenic compounds in greater proportions than uh, Uh cigarette tobacco, Uh but it doesn't have an increased risk associated with it. So maybe we should outlaw smoking, but... Legalize it. 
<laughs> there may still be issues regarding it. I mean, John Hansen Flashen of the University of Pennsylvania points out that, in fact, cigarette smokers puff a lot more cigarettes than a smoker, in fact, with a two-pack-a-day habit will apparently light up 292,000 cigarettes over 20 years. Wow. Yeah, it just might be an exposure issue. So I thought the whole thing with cigarettes and cigars was that tobacco in the cigar form is actually less addictive than cigarettes because it's been treated chemically, and that's why you have the addictive factor. Certainly cigarettes are designed to give you a very high dose of your nicotine. Mm -hmm. Marijuana is not quite as addictive, so you're not smoking quite as much as you would a cigarette. Just some good news out there for all the stoners. We like to give good news to stoners. And it was presented at a recent uh, meeting of the American Thoracic Society International Conference. So, Charles, do you have sticky fingers? I've given up sugars. But maybe the bacteria on your fingers could be a little sticky. My bacteria are messy creatures. (laughs) Scientists have discovered aquatic species of bacteria, which seems to have the strongest sticking power ever measured. In fact, three to four times stronger than superglue. Superglue has let me down on occasion, so I'm looking for a better adhesive. Uh To give you some perspective, if you had like a patch the size of a quarter with this glue, sufficient enough to hold a five-ton elephant... I From a helicopter? So. <laughs> Although I'm not sure if maybe the elephant would just fall apart under its own weight or something. Yeah. I mean, what part of the elephant would you be holding it? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I'm just imagining it dangling by its trunk. <laughs> <laughs> These come from the Calobacter crescenta cells, and they were able to measure this using atomic force microscopy, where they took some pipettes and tried to see how much force was needed to remove one of the uh, bacteria from the surface. Do they know what protein or what compound is actually giving it such adhesive powers? The glue is actually based on the polysaccharide of N-acetylglucosamine pretty common compound, but somehow in the polymeric form, it has this incredibly strong power. This opens a lot of interesting possibilities in terms of biomolecular uh, glues. You could use it as sutures and staples in a surgical procedure. Since it's aquatically based, you can actually use these to fix the holes of ships. That's a good idea. This comes from our very, very favorite journal, actually. It isn't, really. (laughs) The sticky one. The proceedings? Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. I wonder how those bacteria actually evolved. Probably by sticking together. (laughs) They're a close-knit group, aren't they? Uh Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that there might have been only one choice for them when they actually got down that road of evolution. Really? Yeah, so you might think, uh, given a certain set of circumstances, that organisms might adapt to a new set of circumstances in any number of variety of ways. But it turns out in a recent experiment done with some bacteria that they always converge on the same solution when adapting to a new environment. I guess if you have a batch of bacteria change the environment, even have like separate batches, they'll each somehow evolve towards the same final evolution. Right. Same set of genes apparently being expressed. At least that's the suggestion from results that were published by Yusuf Shama's group, a uh, structural biologist at Rice University in Texas. What he did is basically took some bacteria, modified their genes, thermophilic bacteria that can live at very high temperatures. Right. So he swapped out one of their genes with an organism that lives at low temperature. Okay. And then slowly started growing up groups of these in higher and higher temperatures and were isolating out colonies as they adapted to the new higher temperatures. Right. What he found was that you'd have groups of bacteria that would start to expressing different genes as you got higher and higher. But once you got to the final temperature, they all expressed the same gene. 
Amazing. Yeah, and you found that no matter how many times you did this, starting from the low temperature going to the high temperature, they always converged onto this one particular set of genes, huh. suggesting that in certain circumstances, there's only one right solution, or at least a solution that is limited by uh, the bacteria's repertoire that it can converge on. I see. So they arrived by random mutations that mm-hmm. adaptable for that environment, is that right? Right, right. But for some genes, there's only one solution that uh, could possibly give you a stable sense. Mm-hmm. And this gene in particular, since it needs to be stable at high temperatures, maybe that's the only possible configuration. Wow, that's very cool. <laughs> Indeed. The implications for multicellular organisms are unclear, obviously, since limited type genome, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. still very fascinating. And this was work that was reported in a recent edition of Molecular Cell. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Dr. Ken Croswell will join us to discuss the 10 planets. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, the recent discovery of a putative 10th planet orbiting our sun has galvanized both the public and scientific imaginations. The new planet, which is larger than Pluto, has caused the scientific establishment to reconsider what the definition of a planet actually is, and the possibility that even more planets await our discovery. Well, joins today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Dr. Ken Croswell. Dr. Croswell is an astronomer living here in Berkeley, and he received his Ph.D. from Harvard University and is the author of several articles and books on astronomy, among them Planet Quest and The Alchemy of the Heavens. His new book, Ten Worlds, is the only book to feature all ten planets in our solar system. Dr. Croswell, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. It's a pleasure to be here, Charles. Uh, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. You've written, I think, a very fascinating book, uh, Ten Planets, here. Maybe for those who are not really up on the nine planets that we knew thus far, if we can maybe recap the planets up to and out till uh, the new tenth planet. Sure. Well, the first planet from the sun is the planet Mercury. It's mm-hmm. a very hot planet, as you might imagine, but it's also a very cold planet. It's actually one of the coldest planets in the solar system, too, because it's so slowly, mm. and the sun remains up in its sky for 88 days, and then the night lasts for another 88 nice. days. So it's both a very hot planet and a very cold planet. And then the next planet is planet Venus, which is actually the hottest planet in our solar system, mm. even hotter than Mercury because it has a thick carbon dioxide atmosphere that causes a terrible greenhouse effect, the sort that we don't want to see ever happening here on Earth, right. which, by the way, is the third planet from the sun, <laughs> just in case any Berkeley students out there missed that. Earth is the third planet from the sun. Uh, Mars is the fourth planet. Mars is a very fascinating world because it may have once been similar to the Earth. We know it was a warmer planet once mm. and a wetter planet, too. So those are the first four planets, all small, rocky planets close to the sun. 
Right. And uh, Mars is, of course, very fascinating because it could potentially have had the possibility of life on it at one point. That's right. We look at the ancient parts of Mars and we mm-hmm. see riverbeds, mm-hmm. ancient floods, lakes, possibly even an ocean. The northern half of Mars is somewhat depressed, and a lot of people have speculated that there may have once been an ocean mm-hmm. in that area. We're talking four billion right. years ago, so nothing recent. But long ago, Mars was a better planet and may have given rise to some form of life. Has there been any recent news from the rovers that had launched a couple years ago? Well, the most fascinating thing about them is that they're still working. Right. <laughs> they, they landed on Mars in January of 2004. Yeah. They were supposed to last for 90 days, mm-hmm. and it's over two years later, and right. they're still working and still taking excellent images. In fact, one of the images from 10 Worlds is from the Spirit spacecraft. shows mm-hmm. a two-page landscape view of the sur- surface of Mars. Right. Well, as long as we're on that, these are really actually very fascinating pictures. I mean, they actually look a lot better than some of the uh, NASA images that are out there. Yes. Uh, most of the images come from NASA, yeah. but what we did was to uh, digitally reprocess these images and make them look even better Mm. than the NASA versions and then printed them on very high quality paper. So my goal was to pick the very best images Mm. of each of the 10 planets in our solar system. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Moving outward from Mars then, what do we have? We have the giant planet Jupiter, the largest Mm. planet in our solar system, has 63 moons going Mm. around it. Four of those moons are big moons comparable in size to the Earth's moon. Mm. Then of course we have the planet Saturn, one of our best planets. And following that planet we have uh, the planets Uranus and Neptune which are really twin planets, very similar to each other. And then the planet Pluto, ninth planet from the sun, discovered in 1930. And had I been doing this interview a couple (laughs) years ago, I would have said that's the last planet in our solar system. That's actually a planet that's near and dear to my heart because I actually grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona, where Ah. Lowell Observatory is. So we we were always quite proud that Pluto was discovered there. (laughs) Yes, indeed, yes. Um, In Arizona. uh, Lowell Observatory was founded by Percival Lowell Mm -hmm. in uh, the 1890s. And as you point out, it's located in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, He was actually more interested in Mars, Mm -hmm. but um, because astronomers made fun of his Martian theories, it drove him to conduct a secret search for a new planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't find it during his life, but Mm -hmm. someone working later at Lowell Observatory, uh, Clyde Tombaugh, Mm -hmm. did discover Pluto in 1930. And when Pluto was named, it was named Pluto in part because Pluto was the god of the underworld. Mm -hmm. He lived in darkness. In a sense, so does the planet, which is 3.7 billion miles from the sun. But also, the first two letters of Pluto's name are the initials of Percival Lowell, who founded Lowell Observatory. Indeed, indeed. I I recall, you know, being up at the Lowell Observatory, and they show the technique that they used. It was basically comparing images from two different photographs, and they saw the speck moving across it. Is that similar to how the 10th planet was discovered? It's similar, except the computer did it this time. Hmm. But basically, a planet going around the sun is going to move from night to night, Hmm. whereas the stars hold steady from night to night. So what you do, I mean, in principle, it sounds very easy. Uh, (laughs) The actual searching is incredibly tedious, and not the sort of thing I'd want to do, but in principle, it's very simple. The stars hold steady from night to night. You Mm -hmm. take a photograph of, let's say, the constellation Gemini, which is where Pluto was discovered Mm -hmm. uh, on one night. Then you take exact same photograph the next night or a few nights later. Each star is going to hold steady from night to night. You're looking for the one thing that is actually moving from night to night. That might be a planet. Of course, it might be an asteroid, or it might just be a a defect in the photograph. Uh, So Clyde Tombaugh did outstanding work. He searched actually many years even after Pluto was discovered for more planets. He was Mm. very thorough, very meticulous, and it's a real tribute to the thoroughness with which he did Mm. his work that he found Pluto. 
billion miles farther than Neptune was. It's amazing. And apparently, 10th planet was discovered at its uh, furthest point from the sun. Yeah, it actually was. 10th planet has a very elliptical mm-hmm. orbit around the sun, mm-hmm. and in fact, overlaps Pluto's orbit at its closest. But as you point out, right mm-hmm. now, it's around its farthest point. Mm-hmm. So it actually was discovered pretty close to its hardest place to see, because, of course, when it's farthest from the sun, that's when it's hardest mm-hmm. to see. Right, right. Who, who was it uh, that discovered the 10th planet? Mike Brown at Caltech and his colleagues discovered 10th planet. The official discovery date was January 5th, 2005, and it was actually their computer that noticed it moving <laughs> among all those uh, stars. So was uh, the computer the co-author on the paper then? <laughs> no, uh, no, I don't think the computer got much credit. Oh, well, what a shame. Has the 10th planet actually been named, or is that still up in the air? No, the 10th planet has no name at all, because some astronomers don't want to call it a planet, mm. even though it is three times farther than Pluto, and it's bigger mm. than Pluto. Now, in the view of most of us, Pluto is a planet, mm-hmm. and so if you find something bigger than Pluto, well, that's a planet too. Right. Uh, that's my view. So I think it ought to be named, but some astronomers want to demote Pluto mm. from planethood, and as someone from Flagstaff, Arizona, you can <laughs> right. imagine... I would be incensed. <laughs> in, exactly. Uh, the, the basic reason is we now know that Pluto is smaller than we had thought long ago. Mm-hmm. Long ago, we thought it was about halfway in size between Mercury and Mars, mm. bigger than Mercury, but smaller Mm. than Mars. And we now know that it's smaller than Mercury, about half the diameter Mm. of Mercury. But it's over twice as big as Ceres, Mm. the largest asteroid. So I think it makes sense to keep calling Pluto a planet. And therefore, you must call the 10th planet a planet because it's a bit larger than Mm. Pluto. But until this matter of what is a planet is resolved, the 10th planet will not have a name because what it gets named depends on whether it's classified as a planet, in which case the rules are rather strict Mm -hmm. because you want a fairly dignified name for a planet versus, let's say, something like an asteroid, in which case it doesn't have to be such a dignified name. In fact, there's an asteroid named Mr. Spock (laughs) out there. So if it's deemed an asteroid, uh, one can be a little more humorous. But if it's deemed an official planet, as I think it will be and I think it should be, it's going to get some sort of dignified name. But right now, there is no name for the 10th planet. Right. Isn't the controversy that it's out among uh, what are called the Kuiper objects, right? And if you give the 10th planet planet status, there might be the possibility you're going to find many of these very large Kuiper Belt objects. Well, the belt that surrounds the orbit of Neptune uh, Mm -hmm. contains at least 1,000 objects that Mm -hmm. we know about. Mm -hmm. Pluto and the 10th planet are the largest. Mm -hmm. This belt is often called the Kuiper Belt or Mm -hmm. the Edgeworth Kuiper Mm -hmm. Belt. Edgeworth actually came up with the idea before Kuiper. But, I mean, the basic question is how many things out there are there that are larger than Pluto? I mean, I would define a planet as something the size of Pluto or bigger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, we know of only two objects in the Edgeworth-Kuiper belt that I would call planets, namely Pluto and the 10th planet. We don't yet know how many other things out there there are, but, you know, it's entirely possible there will be other planets found in Mm -hmm. the Edgeworth-Kuiper belt or even beyond. But I I don't have a problem with that. I guess I'll have to revise the title of my book to maybe 11 worlds or 12 worlds, but that's life. All right, so room for as many worlds as possible then. Yes. So I'm curious then, what do we know about this 10th planet? What are the properties? Does it resemble Pluto in any way? It seems to be very similar Mm -hmm. to Pluto, actually, uh, just a bit larger, Mm -hmm. um, very similar surface composition. It's Mm -hmm. got methane ice on its surface. Mm -hmm. It's very cold, around minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit, just Mm -hmm. as Pluto is. We don't yet know its mass or density, but I wouldn't be surprised if those turn out to be very similar to Pluto as well. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the seventh and eighth planets, Uranus and Neptune, those Mm -hmm. are twin planets, very similar Mm -hmm. in size, mass, and density. And based on what we know about Pluto and the 10th planet, it's looking like those two planets are going to be twin planets as well. I see. And they both have very eccentric orbits, as you mentioned 
before. Yeah. Yes, very elliptical orbits around the sun. Pluto actually overlaps Neptune's orbit, and the 10th planet overlaps Pluto's orbit. Oh, I see. Wow. So no resorts or Starbucks there, huh? Uh, well, how do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think if you lived on Pluto or the 10th planet, you would need a hot cup of coffee now. <laughs> Do the discoveries of the newer planets and other objects that are in the solar system give us insights into the formation of solar systems and especially current searches for extrasolar worlds around other stars? Yeah, we think that the objects in the Edgeworth-Kuiper belt mm. are basically leftovers mm. from the formation of the solar system. In fact, that was what Kenneth Edgeworth proposed back in mm. the 1940s, um, that this ring of objects, which had not yet been discovered back then, mm. should surround the solar system. So we think the, these are leftover objects mm. from the formation of the planets. Likewise, the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, we think are just leftovers from, mm. from the formation of the planets. And some people have actually speculated that Pluto and the 10th planet being so massive may have actually stirred up gravitationally the Edgeworth-Kuiper belt mm. so that they couldn't form any other planets. So it's entirely possible that Pluto and the 10th planet, even though they're the smallest planets in our solar system, mm. you shouldn't feel too sorry for them because <laughs> they were looking out for themselves because <laughs> they were trying to prevent the formation of any competing planets out there. Right, right. Those selfish planets. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, look what Jupiter did to the asteroid belt. I mean, the yeah. reason the asteroid belt exists is because Jupiter's gravity stirred up the material inside its orbit mm -hmm. and prevented the formation of a planet between itself and Mars. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the feature of many of the extra solar systems that have been discovered is that they have these really large gas giant type planets that prevent planets from forming because they seem to be only like two or three in these type of systems. Yeah, well, the easiest planets to detect around other stars are, of course, the giant planets. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly true, especially those that are on very elliptical orbits mm -hmm. will have stirred up things, so probably prevented smaller planets from forming. Do you think there'll ever be uh, an expedition out now to observe the 10th planet? I certainly hope so. We have just launched a spacecraft to Pluto, mm -hmm. and it will be mm -hmm. reaching Pluto in the year 2015. I would hope that we'll be launching a spacecraft to the 10th planet probably at some point after we find the information from Pluto, because we really don't know much about Pluto. We have never sent a spacecraft to Pluto. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we'll want to send a spacecraft to Pluto right. before we send a spacecraft to the 10th planet, just to optimize the spacecraft that's bound for the 10th planet. Indeed, indeed. So, quick question. So, I understand you also uh, try to educate the public on our planets. What are some of the interesting or amusing misconceptions that the general public has on our planets? Well, I think most people are fairly well informed. I, I wouldn't say anything terribly... I haven't noticed anything terribly strange. I mean, nothing that I, as a non-astronomer, if I were a non-astronomer, might not think. So I, I try to be pretty tolerant of other people's ideas and you know misconceptions about astronomy, because a lot of their misconceptions are just kind of common sense. Mm -hmm. But a lot of things that appear to be common sense, of course, as you know, in, in science, turn out to be wrong. But mm -hmm. I do remember once being on a radio program in Wisconsin and being asked if the moon was really made of cheese, <laughs> and was it Wisconsin cheese. <laughs> well, I, I had to tell the truth. Okay. It's California cheese. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, how did you actually become interested in astronomy and all the uh, very fascinating things that it entails? <laughs> well, I got interested back as a kid, uh, back mm. in first grade. One day, one morning, our first grade teacher introduced us to the planets of the solar system. Mm. I was just fascinated that there were worlds out there besides the Earth. <laughs> and that they all had different colors. I mean, those were the two things that hooked me. And so I actually wrote 10 Worlds, not just for adults, but also right. for kids, uh, hoping to get you know, kids interested in the planets of our solar system. All right, well, Dr. Croswell, I do want to thank you for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show and talking about your book, 10 Planets. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. Ken Croswell discussing the newly discovered 10th planet. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, What Planet Are They From? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were not from the Earth, what planet would they be from? Dr. Croswell, are you ready to play your game, the Grokatron 5000? Well, if I get a little help from Frank, sure. <laughs> All right, well, well, we'll let him tag team in if you need to. <laughs> Uh, person number one, what planet is he from? Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Well, certainly a very rich planet. <laughs> well, let's think. Jupiter is the most massive planet, so in that sense, in terms of mass, maybe he's from Jupiter. I don't know. Well, is he a think? core of gold? <laughs> None of the planets have cores of gold. <laughs> also, you know, Microsoft software is like really bloated. <laughs> right. Kind of like Jupiter. Yeah, I think Jupiter. Yeah. Let's, let's go with Jupiter. And it's all throwing its weight around, disturbing other things in the solar exactly. system. Exactly. So. Gobbling up a smaller computer. <laughs> I think we'll, that's we'll a go good choice. Jupiter, right? All right. Uh, okay, we have number two. It's the celebrity entity known as Brangelina. I don't know these celebrities. <laughs> I study real stars. <laughs> well, are they like really beautiful and all? They're purported to be beautiful. Okay, well, I guess from Venus, right? Uh, Named for the goddess of love and beauty and all that. All right. Shall we do that? Of course, it's a very hostile planet we now know, but nonetheless. The Hollywood stars can be temperamental, I think. So Indeed. Yeah. Uh, number three, famed astronomer Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan certainly liked the planet Mars a lot, so that would mm -hmm. be a possibility. Another possibility would be uh, not a planet, but a moon, uh, the big moon of Saturn called Titan. Ah. He was a big fan of Titan. Titan is the only moon. It's one of the biggest moons in our solar system, and it's the only moon that has an atmosphere thicker than the Earth's and has organic material. So he spent a lot of time studying Titan. So I would say if you force me to a planet, <laughs> I would say Mars. Okay. But if you allow me to uh, pick a moon for him, I think he actually might find Titan even more interesting than uh, Mars. Well, maybe we can get Titan to orbit around Mars, and then it'd be perfect. That's, that it's all relative, right? <laughs> okay, well, number four, Howie Mandel. Sorry, I don't know him. <laughs> Tell me about it. I don't know him either. So let's choose a different one. How about... L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, the Scientologist. <laughs> yes, yes, oh, right. my God. Let's see. Well, what planet would produce crazy religions? I think Earth. Earth. <laughs> okay. Excellent, yes. Earth is known for many crazy religions. We're still looking for intelligent life here. <laughs> it's, it's more than others, I guess. All right, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. I know Frank's a big fan of our current president. Well, if you think he's a warlike person, you could say the planet Mars, god of war. Indeed. True. If you just think he's merely incompetent, you could pick... I don't know. There aren't any really incompetent planets in our solar system. No. So maybe some other solar system. Maybe just dark matter. <laughs> Dr. Croswell, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing our game, Grokatron 5000. It's been unique. All right. Well, thank you very much again. And Pusui with the answer to ask this question of the week. What is a natural killer cell? Well, natural killer cell is part of the immune system and it non-specifically destroys antigen in your body. Hello there, Clarice. It's Hannibal Lecter with this week's question of the week. Ooh, one more question, little one. The fermion. Lead you to the answer, it will. If you know the answer, you can email me here at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but your particles will be good with the auntie. And that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.